Mustang is a special podcast production of Boise State Public Radio and the Mountain West News Bureau. Support for this series comes from Barbarian Brewing, who believes all it takes is a few untamed minds, a little elbow grease, and a few pints of beer to make true innovation happen. It's a pretty exciting day. I have Boo and Pistol in my horse trailer, and got them loaded. I've been working just every day. I feed him his grain in the trailer pretty much and just load him in calmly and load him out calmly. And he's come so far from being, you know, a terrified horse that needed to be run down a chute and run into a trailer from the pens to a horse that just like wears a halter and calmly walks in and lets me close metal gates behind him without freaking out and fighting for his life. So it's a, just a huge step. Trailering can be so dangerous and wild horses, prey animals, and enclosed spaces is usually a recipe for disaster. So it's just super cool to um, see him make this kind of progress. And so today we are hauling to my friend Dana's house because it's sort of a safe, quiet spot because the other part of trailering is being able to calmly unload him in a strange place and see what happens. I'm on the edge of my seat because if this goes well and if I can do this, then we're kind of opening up the door for some some big adventures and kind of the world is our oyster from here on out, me and Boo, if I can get him in trailers and take him to new places calmly and safely. So feels like giving something back to him from what was taken and sharing hopefully some really cool, cool experiences together along the way. So I'm just excited. I'm just excited. Hi, the book. Oh, oh, hi. Hello, sweetie. Should we back it out? Good boy. Good boy. Yeah. Very nice. You're okay. There you go. Good boy. Take it all in. It's a new place. Yup, Pistol's here. Pistol's here too. Good boy. Check it out. It's a big world out there, huh? Yeah, so far so good. Looking for grass already. Where's Pistol? Here she is. It's a big world, baby horse. Yeah. Good. That's a good boy. What do you think about all this? You're fine with me. Yep, you're fine with me. That is the sound of a very good baby Mustang who just got home. He saw strange hikers on the trail that could have been monsters, and he didn't lose his mind. He was so good. And then finished up and just went right back in and drove home like a champ. And now he's having grain because he is such a good boy. You are such a good boy. I'm so proud of this horse. The world is our oyster, boo. The world is our oyster. We have so many adventures ahead. first food. If you're enjoying Boo's story, and you know a little person who would also enjoy learning about wild horses through Boo and his journey, I've got a kid's book for you. It's called The Little Black Mustang. I wrote it to accompany this podcast, and Katie Michael, the awesome artist who did the artwork for this series, illustrated it. You can get a copy at thelittleblackmustang.com. 
Again, it's thelittleblackmustang.com. There are two geese, 22 chickens, two dogs, five guinea hens, and two peacocks at Allison Burke's place on the Spokane Indian Reservation in northeastern Washington. There's a, a lot happening out here. I am here to meet her Mustangs. A gray-blue colored horse stands next to Allison, watching us closely. That's Blue. (laughs) Um, He is very flighty. He's got a very, very low fear threshold. Um, So he doesn't really always let me touch him. It's got to be his idea. Allison has four Mustangs on her property. All of them are from Native American reservations. She introduces me to Jack next. He's a white horse with brown spots all over him, what's called an Appaloosa. Yeah, and when he got here, he was very, very fearful of people. Um, lots of trauma at the hands of humans. And with the horse's flight or fight instinct and the abuse that he's had, he doesn't flight. He's a fighter. I have scars on me from him biting and just me being in too close of proximity. Allison's been working with Jack for about a year now. And now he's to the point where he'll do... Whatever. And he loves attention, he loves hugs and scratches, and he's really come a long way. But it, it took a while to get there and to build that trust. And he's a nice, nice little horse. Allison has been drawn to horses for her whole life. I kind of see all the animals as, as family, and especially the horse. For whatever reason, ever since I was a little girl, I've just always seen the horse as my friend, my relative and not as a, as, as a thing that's here for my, my use and my enjoyment, but we're, we're friends, family, and, and partners, and we work together. There are more than 80,000 wild horses on federal land in the West, but thousands more live on reservations. Many tribes keep and manage herds on their lands, including the Spokane tribe, as they have for generations. Yeah, so we have our ancestors bred horses for stamina, speed, um, as well as the ability to be able to carry a mother and their child. Um, so they, they bred the war horses and then kind of the babysitter horses. And today, many tribes face the same overpopulation issues that the Bureau of Land Management faces with wild horses on public lands in the U.S., As sovereign nations, though, tribes are free to decide how many horses they want on their lands and how to hit that target. That's what drew me to Allison and the Spokane Reservation. I wanted to learn about how things are done here. Allison is starting a nonprofit called Spokane Equines in Transition. She wants to help reservation horses that are rounded up either find homes or train them for use in programs to connect kids here with their cultural history. Our intention is to prevent any horse leaving this reservation going to slaughter. Uh, we would prefer to see them placed in homes. How do, how do horses end up at slaughter from the res? Um, they're rounded up, and the ones that are desired are kept, and the ones that aren't are put on a trailer and shipped off. 
tribal members are allowed to round up horses and either keep them or sell them if they want to. And that could be to slaughter. Allison told me that over the years, many reservation horses have ended up getting shipped across the border to Canada, where it's still legal to slaughter horses. How does that make you... Those are tribal members that are doing that, right? How does that make you feel... Angry. Very angry. Because without the horse, we wouldn't have a tribe. So what are you doing to our horses? Allison sees this as a broken relationship and a disrespect to the hundreds of years of shared history between her people and their horses. She's not opposed to keeping the wild horse population on her reservation in check, but she feels responsible for the horses that are rounded up. And that belief has its roots in the creation story of many of the indigenous peoples of this region. Let me back up to the beginning, and then you just start cutting and whatever, tell me to move on or or whatever else. Warren Saylor is a historian and elder of the Spokane. He works for the Tribal Department of Natural Resources, and I met with him while I was visiting Allison on the reservation. He shared the creation story that was passed down to him from his grandmother, who was a member of the nearby Kirtalane tribe. Was that when Creator put everything here, the plants and the animals? Well, as he reached down from Mother Earth and fashioned all of those things, the plants and the animals, the four-legged, the winged ones, those with fins, those that crawl, those that slither, and the two-legged, and placed us upon the land. Well, when he did that in that fashion from Mother Earth, that made us brothers and sisters. And that is the part many people, and including tribes, we kind of forget why we call animals of the earth our brothers and sisters. But that is why. Creator brought us forth all together from the same mother. Creator gave all beings laws to live by. And eventually, Warren says, the two-legged man rose above the other creatures. At that period of time, he then gave us a special mind and a special heart. A special mind to be able to think ahead and and prepare for seven generations ahead. But also a special mind to always remember those that came before us and all that they told us. And within the two-legged, then he placed a special heart. And within that special heart, it was to always care for your brothers and sisters. Not just those in your lodge, but your brothers and sisters in the forest and on the mountains and in the waters and in the skies. Warren told me that horses first came to this part of the world in the early 1700s. They arrived with French trappers and explorers, and via trade with other tribes to the south who originally got them from the Spanish conquistadors several hundred years earlier. Horses helped the Spokane and other nations cover more ground for trade. They used them to hunt and forage in the mountains. They would ride them into the rivers and catch fish from their backs. And that partnership of knowing that's that's your brother. You're there to help it, and it's there to help you. White people didn't see it like that. White people saw that that's, that's a burden-bearing animal, not my brother. And so their, their connection didn't come as quickly or as deeply. 
And that connection ultimately helped indigenous nations in this region fight back against the colonizers that began arriving in waves in the mid-1800s. Warriors would swing their bodies mid-gallop to one side of their horses' shoulders to avoid bayonets and bullets in battle. They were a secret weapon, and a beloved, loyal one at that. The U.S. cavalry knew the horse was the key to the survival of many of the tribes in the West. In 1858, after a string of bloody battles around what is now the city of Spokane, where thousands of Native Americans were killed, Colonel George Wright had his men slaughter close to a thousand Spokane horses. And those bones bleached until about 1920s, uh, when the the freeway was going, starting to go through. What he didn't understand is how many other horses were already here, and just there was still quite a few in this in this area. Um, and, and then, you know, a little bit later, when in 1881 we were forced to the reservation, the horse herds were here, and we we actually keep those limited, but we always keep allow some to remain. That's, that's just part of our culture, that, that they're, they're supposed to be there. And humans are meant to care for them, as they're meant to care for all creatures, whether they're two-legged, swimming, flying, slithering, or galloping on four legs, Warren said. That belief informs how this nation and others manage their horse herds today. Because they do manage the numbers of horses on the Spokane Reservation. They're not left to just breed out of control or out of balance with the ecosystem. Tribal members come together and set the target number for how many horses should be on this reservation. And they don't always agree. But it's, but it's that discussion that, you know, it's not my way or the highway. It's let, let's talk about this. Yeah, they're hard conversations, but let's talk about it. Horses are just one part of the connected web of animals and plants that live on the 150,000 acres of the Spokane Reservation. Too many horses could outcompete the deer and elk that tribal members hunt, or the plants and medicines they harvest from their lands. So if you have a 10,000 wild horses and they're overrunning your root fields, your, your bitterroot, your, can, your white camas, your brown camas, your medicines, that's one part of your culture versus another. And those are tough questions to answer. The Spokane have chosen to keep their herd size to between 200 and 250 horses. When that number bumps up to 400 or so, tribal members are encouraged to do roundups, usually on horseback, to bring the numbers back down. Is the tribe okay with some of those horses going to slaughter? I don't think the tribe, that's not the tribe's decision to be made. That's the individual's. Once they're rounded up. Once, once that's... That is then theirs. Yeah, so that, that the tribe doesn't play a role in that decision. And that's where Allison sees a problem. Once her fellow tribal members catch horses here, they're free to do whatever they want with them. And sometimes the easiest thing to do is to sell them to so-called kill buyers, who haul them across the border to be slaughtered for meat. Allison believes that sending horses to slaughter is a sign of a disconnect between her people and their heritage, their history. And she wants to try and heal that as she heals herself. Okay. 
Allison often sees wild horses on the shores of Lake Roosevelt, not far from her house on the reservation. So she took me there before I headed home. Is that a scary ride? Oh. Yeah. Not like I'm a perfect driver either. We decided to bring horses with us because Allison wanted to give Jack, the spotted Appaloosa horse she's training, some practice loading into a trailer and going to a new place. Hi, Jack Jack. Here I am. Good boy. Who is here, buddy? Ready for your mare to come with you? I left my Mustang Boo at home because even though he's figuring out the horse trailer, he's still nervous in new places with me. Instead, I brought Pistol, my calm, older mare, to provide moral support to Jack. There she is, Jack Jack. He's okay. We got a friend. I'm not alone. He says okay. Yeah. I do want to get his, my treat bucket. Okay. The beach is off limits to non-tribal members, but I'm allowed to be there as long as I'm with Allison. So the four of us went for a walk along the sandy lake shore. Jack Jack, it's okay. And the water is really low, so there is a possibility of finding artifact. If we do, we have to turn it over and protect the site. Um, Jack's antsy, so I think we should get walking. Okay, sounds good. How's he feeling energy-wise or anxiety-wise? Snorty McSnort? Where's that? There you go, Jack. Good job, buddy. Good job. It was a hot, sunny day, so we walked for a bit and then looked for some shade under nearby trees. So why don't I take Pistol up there and just tie her right where she can eat a little bit of grass? And then we could sit on this log right here. It's kind of perfect for two people to sit oh, yeah. in the shade, and then you could just hold him with us. Yep, yeah, I'm going to tie her right here so we can see her. Allison held Jack's lead rope and he settled down to graze next to us. She told me she's actually never been to this spot on the reservation before. In fact, she wasn't raised on the reservation. She grew up in the city of Spokane, not far from here as the crow flies, but culturally, it was another world. I never actually learned my culture. I never learned my language. I never, I didn't go to powwows as a child. Um, I was, removed from that. Her grandparents had been sent to boarding schools when they were young, or residential schools is another name for them. Basically, it was part of the U.S. government's strategy to eradicate Native culture by removing children from their communities, forcing them to cut their hair, speak English, and learn white customs. And that schism, that separation, was passed down to her mother's generation. Allison's father is white, and Allison went to public school with mostly white students in Spokane. She learned how to ride in the English style, wearing breeches and a helmet. But in the summer, she'd come stay with her grandparents on the reservation. And she's grateful for that time, running around with her cousins and being around her grandpa's horses. I have always wanted to move out here. And without a place to live, it's just not been possible until I was able to move into uh, my grandma's house. Housing on the reservation is very limited. After her grandmother passed away, Allison's mother asked her if she wanted to move into the house. Allison was living in Seattle at the time, working for a hospital doing clinical work and blood draws. She got a job at the health clinic on the reservation and now works full-time helping people here while she tries to build her nonprofit to help the horses, too. So being out here 
now, you know, trying to reconnect um, and in some ways trying to decolonize a little bit. And one of those ways for me is um, living here. Um, <laughs> Jack. Thank you, Jack. Are you part of that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> let's get Jack off of the microphone. Can you back up, buddy? Can you back up the hill? Good boy. Yeah, good yeah. boy, Jackie. Good job. Good boy. That was hard. That was very hard. Okay, go over there. <laughs> Jack thinks this interview needs to be more about him. Yeah, clearly. You're a hero, though, buddy. Well, I mean, perfect segue. How have horses like Jack helped you with reacclimating here, decolonizing? Right, so I, um, thanks to Jack, um, I have learned a lot more about my ancestors and the way that they used the horse and how they valued the horse. Um, I did not know previous to moving home and starting this project uh, that our ancestors would ride the horses into the water and fish from horseback. And I mean, that takes one heck of a solid horse to go stand in the water and have a big giant fish reeled up onto their back because <laughs> you know they're they're alive and wiggly when they're yanked out of the water yeah uh, <laughs> it's a relationship it's a partnership it is definitely a partnership and and that that is one of the hard things that's going to be really hard about this program is when I have worked with a horse especially one like Jack who has a lot of trauma from the hands of humans and to have him come in and be so afraid but obviously with him right in our laps right now, he's no longer fearful of people. Um, but, but I have also bonded with him. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it is going to be very, very hard because more and more, the more time I spend with him, the more we work together, the more I see him not just as a horse, but as my friend, as my relative, and as my brother. And it's... I'm going to start crying. But I know that if he stays here, that's one less horse I can help, right? Because he's taking up that space. Allison has found a woman who wants to adopt Jack, and he could be leaving in the next couple months. She knows it will be hard to see him go, but she hopes there are many horses that follow in Jack's hoofprints into loving homes and that she can continue to work with horses from this reservation to help young people reconnect with their culture, as she has, through horses. Tell me, tell me a little bit about your, your dreams for the future. If I call you in five years or ten years, what do you hope you're telling me, Allison? I hope I'm telling you that this project is so successful that I've devoted 100% of my time to it and I no longer work in healthcare. Um, I hope I can tell you that we have placed X amount of horses, however many that is. Um, I hope that I can tell you that um, in the equine program, bringing equines and horses back to the youth has been successful and that they're constantly riding horses, competing with horses, and looking to their, their wild horses as brothers and sisters and not as a burden.
Next episode, we're heading to Nevada ranching country. Ranchers aren't always the first folks to step up to the microphone when a journalist rolls into town. Well, you want to sit at my tailgate? Yeah. I'm and like, it then... only took me a couple beers to talk to you, but it's fine. <laughs> but once you get them going about the wild horse issue, it's game on. I'm, I'm like, I'll tell anybody, like, these horses, there's too many. It's months and months of work and money trying to fix everything that these mismanaged animals are destroying because nobody, everybody's like, oh, you know, they're pretty. This recording is taking place on the ancestral grounds of the um, Spokane tribe of Indians who lived upon about three million acres, which includes the city of Spokane, and down to the Columbia, down to Koufax, you know, out towards Cheney and Ritzville. That was our ancestral lands that we lived on for thousands of years. Uh, we were placed here, brought here by Creator to take care of these lands. And we will continue to do that forever. Mustang is edited and sound designed by Liza Yeager. Art for the series is by Katie Michael. Did you know you are physically adapting to all your swiping, scrolling, and tapping? We're changing our bodies and what they're able to do through our habits. NPR's Body Electric, a special interactive series investigating how to fix the relationship between our tech and our health. Listen in the TED Radio Hour feed wherever you get your podcasts.